It's good to be with you again. If you have your Bibles, we will turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. I would like to start reading in verse 40. Mark, chapter 1, verse 40. It says, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and he touched him, and he saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed, and he straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou, say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. Now, perhaps most of you are familiar with that story. It's just a little snapshot window of one occasion to where someone approaches Christ and has an interaction with him, and then there's some healing that's taken place. This is found after a series of events in Mark chapter 1 to where Jesus begins his public ministry. He goes in uh, to a synagogue, begins to preach, and there's a a man in particular that's possessed with a demon. He casts that out. There are more details of that story, but he casts out the man and the people, or the demon, and the people are all amazed. Well, then it says in verse 28, immediately from that, His fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. So his display of authority over the demons there, or over the demon-possessed man, amazed the people, you see in verse 27. And then it says that his fame, we just read, was spread. People were going around talking about this guy, Jesus, who had gone into the synagogue and done what no one had ever done, as far as what they had seen. And then after that, he goes to... Peter's wife's mother's and heals her. He goes to pray. His disciples wonder where he went. They go to find him and he says, it's time for us to leave. He enters another synagogue. And then it says that this leopard finds him after it says that he had been healing folks. One thing I really love about the Gospels, specifically what I love about the Gospel of Mark, is that Mark is to the point. He's moving at a rapid pace. But if you can keep up with where Mark is, and really what we are getting out of the Gospel of Mark is Peter's account of what happened while Christ was here that he gives us, you get to see a very clear picture of who God is. It's easy to run through a Gospel and, and, and see all the things that Jesus is doing, and those are important. It's easy to run through and, and get all these quick little snapshots of, of what it was that Christ did while he was here on earth, how it is that Christ related to these different people that came to him while he was here on earth. And, and it's easy to get a fast view through here. You could go several different directions, I suppose, with the story of the man that had leprosy. I think a good place to go is to uh, look at his example on how it is that God is to be approached based on the leper's actions, but also based on what we learn about Jesus in this passage. It's natural for us to kind of have a awkwardness with people that we don't really know, an uncomfortableness with people that we don't really know. 
an inability to be able to really be us. I mean, that's no new news to you. You know that. To, to be able to open up and be completely honest and to make yourself vulnerable, it's difficult to do that with people you don't really know. It's also very difficult to do that with God a lot of times, isn't it? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves. I think sometimes it's because we miss out a lot on what God's character is. And I don't mean we don't have a head knowledge like we understand what the facts are and we couldn't rattle off the list of what God has revealed about himself. But I think sometimes we have a really difficult time believing that the God who really created the whole universe, the God who is holy and separate from sinners in an infinite way, we can take comfort in the fact that God sent his son to die for us on the cross and that God is saving us and that we will one day see him as he really is. But I don't think it's just me here. Uh, maybe it is, but I really doubt it. I don't think it's just me that struggles a lot of times with just a hesitancy to really have what I would call a uh, open, almost a raw conversation with God. And I think in this passage we find more than enough reason to do that. Why would you not entrust somebody with something that you felt like was a vulnerable area of your life? Well, there's really only one answer to that, and that's trust. So if we were to go around the room, I have very little doubt that very many, if any, in here would open up and start telling me deep, dark secrets. I'm not going to tell you any of mine. (laughs) We don't really know each other that well. And it's not that I'm real suspicious of you in a malicious way. I just don't really trust you with that information. And so we can have a good conversation. I can enjoy your company. But there's a level in which you can probably relate and discuss with each other that you will not discuss and relate to me. Because in a real way, there's, I mean, you know that there's this guy named Lewis that comes from Ripley, and he preaches, and you have your opinion about whether you like or don't like him, and Really, that's about it, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of it. And so there's a lot of things about me that you do not know. As we look at the person of Jesus, he takes us, he moves us from that uh, awkwardness, a little bit of unsurety, not that we would question whether or not God is good. I had a conversation with an individual this week, and they said, I don't really question the fact that God's good, but I do not think his good and my good are the same. And so there's just some hesitancies there. It was a real raw and open conversation. I appreciated the honesty there. And I think probably in the heart of all of us, we might say the same thing. Where we have our most difficult times trusting God is probably because we feel like His good and our good are not really the same. Not that we would question God's justice, but if we were to have to dice that thing down in degrees, we would probably be uncomfortable with some of the ramifications of where that might lead. So there's a couple of things I want to get from this passage The first thing is just the man that approaches Jesus. It's funny to me that this is even part of the story. There came a leper to him, begging him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou will, thou canst make me clean. The fact that this man is a leper should automatically exclude him from any public anything. This was a guy that had been considered unclean, I would say a long time ago, but we don't really know how long he had leprosy. He would have been considered unclean. He would have been avoided by everyone. And really, it wasn't that they would be coming out of the houses and going out into the public thinking, well, if I see a leper, I better avoid him. But he was quarantined in his own little place. And so anyone in society that saw this man, if they happened to see this man out, would have immediately 
gone the other direction. But not only that, it would have been evident to them, just automatic like that, that he does not belong here. He needs to be over there. There's something wrong with this guy. Why is he out? Why would he come out to infect us with what he has? He's really, this is the sad state of what it was. He was really quarantined to a life among lepers until the day that he died. I mean, there was real, really no hope that this guy would ever go home. He would never uh, probably see his family unless his family decided to uh, become lepers along with him and be quarantined along there. And the life that this man had to live out was a very sad life. It was a very lonely life. It was no doubt a very disappointing life. Not only that, but I'm sure that the life that he had to live out was a very bitter life. What would your life be like if every time you went out to find someone or went out to have any kind of conversation with anyone, you were just automatically marked and people avoided you and did the best that they could to stay away from you? I imagine cynicism and bitterness and a host of other emotions would just become your normal. It wouldn't mind. I mean, I wouldn't like you very much if every time you saw me you were trying to get away. Uh, much less an entire town of people, and really, from this man's perspective, an entire world of people that would have nothing to do with him unless they were dying the same death that he was. Not only that, if he could come to accept the fact that he was not accepted in society, what he had to look forward to was a life lived with a disease that would ultimately um, just begin to rot his body off. There's probably a better way to say that, but eventually this man's fingers would fall off if they weren't already falling off. Eventually his facial features would fall off. He would become just a mangled, uh, scary-looking individual. And outside of just the way he looked, it would be a very painful existence. I mean, can you imagine getting the, the diagnosis, coming to the reality that all I have is time, and within that time, the only thing I have to wait on is for my body to begin to rot and just become a pitiful uh, excuse of a person as far as the end of all that? Well, that's not a very encouraging thought, is it? I mean, it doesn't get your spirits up thinking about that. What do you think makes a man like that come out into town to seek out another man when he knows that he does not belong? And in a real sense, had he broken the quarantine, it would have probably been a mercy, but it would have been they could have killed him. They could have taken him out and stoned him for that. What does it take for a guy to take that risk, to go out looking for a man in a place that he doesn't belong? It says once he found him, it says he was beseeching him. He was begging him. And he knelt down and he said, if you will, you can make me clean. If you want to, you can make me clean. Well, I'm going to say that what makes a man do that is the reputation of whoever it is that he's going to see. It says that Jesus' fame went throughout Galilee. Everyone was talking about this man. Everyone was talking about the guy that was in the synagogue that cast out this demon. Everyone was talking about this man that was healing people. And I imagine this leopard heard the news. I don't know how long he said on it. We don't really get that he said on it very long since it occurs here at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. But as soon as he heard the news, he thought, I've got to go see this guy. I've got to go see him. And so as he goes and he makes his request, it says this about Jesus in verse 41. It says, And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and he touched him, and he said unto him, I will be thou clean. Now we learn a lot about God in verse 41. A lot about God in verse 41. You ever seen people on the street or you ever seen people that you're walking by and they just kind of freak you out for whatever reason? Maybe you're suspicious because they look like they might be dangerous. Maybe they just kind of look a little crazy, and, I've, and you want to avoid them. 
I've done that. Um, Jesus doesn't avoid this man. The man that everybody else has avoided. Jesus does not avoid him. He comes up. You ever had the guy, I don't know, I don't know what, it doesn't look like downtown Gaston's a real place for homeless folks to hold out cups for money, but maybe. If not, you've probably been to some places where there have been. The guy that's holding out the cup for money, the guy that's sitting on the interstate. I don't know about you, but I tend to avoid those guys. If I'm stopped at a stoplight, every now and then I'll throw a couple of dollars in there, but I'm kind of cynical most of the time that what they're going to do is take my money and go drink it away. I just kind of avoid them. Well, this guy would have been way worse than that. I've never thought if I roll down my window and give this guy something, I'm going to get a disease that I'll never be able to get over and then I'm going to die. It was just more of a nuisance than anything else. And I'm going to imagine that in that culture at that time, anyone with leprosy would have been a nuisance. A human condition can be kind of depressing, can't it? I mean, I don't take pride in myself if I stand up here and tell you that I avoid these homeless guys holding out cups and that I'm cynical about what they're going to do with the money and that... um, they're more of a nuisance to me than anything else. But I think everybody in here can probably relate to that thought. But it says that whenever Jesus was met with this man, it says the first thing that we find is that he was moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. And then he displays that. Look what he does. He put forth his hand and he touched him. And he said, I will be thou clean. You know the story. He heals the guy. But he does something really specific here that builds on the idea that he is a compassionate God. How long do you think it had been since this man had been touched? You don't touch a leper. That's how you get the disease. You don't come into contact with this guy. You don't do anything with him. When's the last time you were touched? You don't remember, do you? It happens all the time. If you do remember, it's just because you're thinking real hard because you didn't really think anything about it whenever it happened last. What if it had been years since anyone had ever touched you? You know, and just to... That's just part of affection, right? To give a hug, to embrace somebody, to shake somebody's hand. I mean, that's a meaningful thing. We don't know how long it had been since this man had been touched. I bet he did. I bet he knew how long it had been since he, if he had children, he was able to hold his child. I bet he knew how long it had been since he was able to embrace his wife. I bet he knew how long it had been since he had been able to touch his parents. And what we find is a man that had not been touched in who knows how long, comes to a God that's full of compassion. And the same God that could have just spit on the ground and put mud in his eyes and said, go wash them off and you'll be free or you'll be cleansed of your leprosy. He doesn't do that. The same God that could have just said, be clean. He didn't do that. But he reaches out and he touches this man. And then he says, I will. I will. And the indication there is not just that Jesus was going along and said, "Eh, you know, whatever, be clean. But the indication there is that Jesus wanted to heal the man. It was his desire to heal this man of his leprosy. It's what he wanted to do. It wasn't what he got talked into doing. It wasn't what he was doing because he was just in a hurry and wanted to get it out of the way. He stops. He takes his time. He looks at the man. He touches the man, has compassion on the man, and he says, I want to. Now be clean. And then he charges him, and you get the rest of the story as you go down. I want to get a few things out of this as we think about how we approach God. The first one is this, as the man comes to God, as he comes to Jesus, the man is fully convinced of his condition and of his need. Fully convinced of his condition and of his need. There came a leopard, he was beseeching him, he was kneeling down to him and saying, if you will, you can make me clean. It's hard to be romantic about the idea of having leprosy. It's hard to be blind or to put a positive spin on that. I wonder how convinced we are about our condition and need as we come to God on a daily basis. 
if we don't have an accurate view of that, we will not really have the kind of communion that we were made to have communion with God, the kind of relationship that we were made to have with God, the kind of trust that we were meant to have toward God, the kind of anything that we were meant to have toward God. I wonder how much we realize that we depend upon God. I wonder how much we realize that our condition has skewed the way that we view life, that our condition skews the way we even live life. And of course, what I mean by that is not necessarily leprosy, but remember we take the, if we could take that and, and uh, maybe even call it spiritual leprosy, but we wouldn't even have to spiritualize all that. Our total depravity, the fact that we struggle with sin on a daily basis. In every area of our lives, our heart is tainted, it's shaded, it's really enticed, and the influence just lingers there. I wonder how many times we feel like we have righteous indignation. It's because we turned a blind eye to our own selfishness. And as we come to God for relief in that, uh, we're asking for Him to change the wrong person. I don't know about you, but it happens with me pretty often. It's a lot easier for me to pray that God would soften your heart than mine. Of course, the problem with us is sin. We know that. Romans 5.12, you know that. That in Adam, sin came in. And as Adam sinned and fell, so we inherit that sin nature. Genesis 3.5, it goes back there. As Eve is tempted by Satan in the garden, and time and time again we are tempted really with the same temptation packaged up in a different phrase. Did God really say, fill in the blank, do you not know that if you do that, if you partake of this fruit, if you partake of whatever, that in the day that you do that you will become like God? God knows that. You don't know that? I don't know if I've said it here before. I say it pretty often. I didn't come up with this, but I think it's really good. Robbie Zacharias says that Satan was almost right whenever he said that. But really what he was saying was, in the day, Eve, and in the day, plug in your name, that you decide to do what God's told you not to do, you set yourself up as God, determining your own good and your own evil. That's what we do on a daily basis whenever we rebel against God. We say, God, thank you very much. Your law is pretty good for some folks. A lot of times it's pretty good for me, but not right here, not right now. I know what I need better than you know what I need, and so this is what I'm going to do. Setting ourselves up as God, determining our own right and our own wrong. You know that abstractly, right? I mean, nobody here is going to go get a pitchfork if I preach total depravity. And while I don't know many of you real personally, specifically, I bet we could all get kind of riled up if we went around the room pointing out each other's sins, couldn't we? We could. We'd get defensive about that. We could stand wholeheartedly on the 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 uh, T in tulip. Total depravity. We believe that. We've got that down. I'm, you don't have to convince me about that. But you see, I'm the kind of sinner that doesn't really sin. It's just there. And while I may sin every now and then over here, what you're talking about is, you know, all this daily stuff. It's not not me. Or either it's one of those broad general things that you can't really, you know, it's not really hurting anybody. It's not really offending anybody. The other part of our condition in Ephesians 2, 1, is the fact that by ourselves, by our very nature, after we get finished with, you know, Genesis 3, 5, if God were to leave us where we were, we are completely dead by nature to God. Completely dead. No life at all. You throw in Jeremiah 17.9 with that, the fact that our hearts are desperately wicked and they're also desperately deceptive. We can't really know our own hearts. We can't really know. We can't really pinpoint our own motives. We, we, we like to think a lot of times that we're, we're doing things for a specific reason and our motives are good in this thing. 
And the truth about you and the truth about me is we are not equipped to diagnose our own hearts. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? We're not equipped to diagnose our own hearts. That means we're not equipped to try to justify ourselves because we don't really know. We might think we know, but we don't really know. Throw on top of that, 1 Corinthians 2.14, that by nature we really do not understand spiritual things. The natural man does not receive spiritual things. As a matter of fact, spiritual things are foolish to the natural man. Romans 8.7, there's a big contrast between walking in the Spirit, walking in the flesh, and by nature we are habitually influenced by our depravity. This means by nature we're a lot more comfortable and really dead to the Spirit, but we are very comfortable walking in the flesh, being influenced by our own wickedness. And then in Romans 8.8, 8, in our natural state, those who are in the flesh, it is impossible for us to please God. And we get to this point and you say, Lewis, why in the world did you come down here to tell us all that? Well, I just say that, and I realize it's kind of like, uh, you know, getting you down in the dumps and then doing one of these things where you just keep going. If you don't realize your condition, you're not going to come to God the way God's called you to come to Him. God says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That doesn't just mean that you're poor in spirit the day or the second or the minute before you are converted, the minute before God blesses you to be regenerated through His Spirit. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's an indefinite thing. Those who see what they really are. And while we have been delivered from this in an ultimate sense, we have been given the Spirit, we have been regenerated to the Holy Spirit so that we can understand spiritual things, so that we don't have to be continually influenced by the flesh, so that to some degree we can diagnose, we can know our motives. We still wrestle with these things on a daily basis. And if we come to God thinking that we've, we've kind of overcome this, or if we come to God thinking, I've got the tea and tulip, but we miss how it personally really hits us and how we live it out in our everyday lives, I'm telling you, we come to God in the wrong way. We can't really approach God in the right way as if God is the God who He says He is in the Bible and as if we are the people that God says we are laid out in the Bible if we don't come to Him in full dependence, in full need on Him. Lord, I need you to open up my eyes. You've done a work of grace in me, and I have the ability, but I still need you to influence my heart with your word. I still need you to enlarge my heart that I might walk in your ways in Psalm 119. So, we have to come convinced of our own condition. If not, if not, a lot of times what it turns into is that we come to God convinced that we've been handed out the short end of the stick. If not, we come to God convinced that, God, you're not really doing what I thought you were going to do, and you're probably not really even doing in my life what you said you would do. If we don't come to God in full awareness of our condition, God becomes a disappointment to us. And none of us really have the nerve to get up and say that in front of everybody, but I think everybody in here would understand what that experience is like. You've got to be fully convinced of your condition and your need. Second thing, as the man came, he was fully convinced of Christ's ability. It says there was a leper. He was there. He came to Christ. He begged him, and he knelt down, and he said, If you will, you can make me clean. As he came to Christ, he was not coming as someone that thought, Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but I'm going to try this thing out and see what happens. But he had heard of Jesus. He had heard at what Jesus had done. And as he comes to Christ, he comes to him convinced of his ability. Now, that's married to something else. While he's convinced of his ability, he also comes completely submissive to Christ's sovereignty. You ever come to a place and you've thought, well, I know God can do this. Why are you not doing this, God? I know this would be better for me. 
I know it would be better for me. I know that it would also be a display of your glory if you would do this. I would tell people about it. People would see this miraculous turn in my life. Lord, you can do this. Why aren't you doing this? That's not what this man does. He comes and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Completely submissive to Christ's sovereignty. The one who's in the heavens and has done whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3. Romans 9 tells us that he reserves the right. Let's turn there. Romans 9.15. You're familiar with this. Romans 9.15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. As we read that, really the principle that we take away is that God reserves the right to be merciful to whom he wants to be merciful to. God is not obligated, in a sense, outside of himself. God is not obligated to be merciful, really, to anyone. But really, again, whenever we think about living everyday life, we just kind of assume, and we're going to get in a minute to build on that idea, but we just kind of assume, um, well, God, you know, it's just kind of what you are and who you are and Where's your mercy? How come, you, how come I don't see it? How come it's not the way I thought it would be? That's another thing, and, and we're not going to get too far into that, but a lot of times God mercy, God's mercy and God's grace comes into our life, and it comes in such a way that is completely foreign to the way we thought it was going to be. I mean, if you, if you think about the life of Joseph and all those things that Joseph went through, even if you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and the life that he lived after he was converted, you find a life of a man who was saturated in God's grace, who was saturated in God's mercy, but also a man that had a lot of difficulties. You find a man, uh, Joseph, a man that was, again, God had his hand on and that God was merciful to, that God was gracious to, but you also find a man who has these confusing twists and turns of events. And while we can look back on it now and say, well, look at that, God was working it all out for good for Joseph. While he was there, he had no idea how the end of that was going to turn out, just like we don't. So as the man comes, he says, Lord, I know you can do this. I know you have the ability to do this. And if you want to, you can. You remember we said earlier, when we look at verse 41, we really get a good look at the character of God expressed, related to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It, says that, or it doesn't say this, but this is the fourth point here. That as the man came, as he approached Christ, as he approached God, he approached Him and he was compelled by His character. He was compelled by His character. We said that again earlier, that the man obviously had heard of Jesus from the acts of mercy that he was doing as he was healing people, from the times that he was casting out demons in the synagogue. But it said Jesus was moved with compassion as he put forth his hand. He had heard about this man that was, and this is not what the leper is saying about Jesus, this is what Mark is saying about Jesus. But as you find Jesus interacting with men, you find that a reoccurring thing that comes up is he's compassionate. He's got a heart that is full of compassion. He looked upon the multitude and they were as a sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion. He saw the woman at Nain who was getting ready to bury her son and he had compassion. He's full of compassion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get in verse 14 really the a look at what a motivating factor or a draw, not only for us, but I, I think really for the leper also. 
He says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that he died for all, that they which should that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, obviously, the leper didn't know all that, but verse 14, the love of of Christ constrains us. That means it urges us, it controls us, it compels us, it irresistibly keeps us moving toward that object. Christ would be the object there. The love of Christ continually moves, motivates, compels us toward Him. Now again, as I make these comments as far as trying to apply this, I do it based on really me and my own self. I don't know you well enough to be able to speak this toward you. But I wonder how much of the time that the love of Christ is what compels us to go to Him. I wonder how much of the time the love of Christ outweighs the guilt of us in thinking we ought to do this because it's right to do. I wonder how much of the time the love of Christ outweighs just the sheer going through the motion kind of thing that we get so tied up in on a daily basis. I wonder how much the love of Christ outweighs the self-sufficiency that we walk around in on a pretty regular basis. And again, as I say that, I don't know you. You may not be doing that. I'm betting you are, but I'll go ahead and admit to you, I do it pretty often. You see, it's the love of Christ. The fact that there's one there that, that loves us, that's approachable, but not just that. And we find hope in what we read in Romans chapter 9 that God is selective about who He gives mercy to. I will give mercy to whom I will, and I will keep it from whom I will. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, as we look at the leper, really we find this happening in his life. A lot of times we look at that verse, and a lot of times that verse is a proof text to irresistible grace, drawing us to Christ as far as a conversion, as far as uh, uh, regeneration. But that verse is not necessarily limited to a regeneration conversion type of verse. He says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And then here's the promise. He that comes to me, uh, I will not cast out. And then the real... Meat of that is verse 38. I did not come down from heaven to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. Well, if Paul says over in Romans chapter 9, which is just rephrasing what was already said over in Exodus, that God has, is exclusive about who he gives his mercy to. I will give my mercy to whom I want to. You could say it that way. And then Jesus says, all the come to me or all that the Father gives me are going to come to me and as they come to me I will not cast them out I came here to do the will of the Father we also know through just other places what God's will was for Jesus Christ to bring his people back to him we know this when Jesus speaks to the leper and the leper says if you will you can make me clean Jesus says I will I want to it's my will to do this And the reason it was Christ's will is because it was the Father's will. And as we see that interaction between Christ and the leper, we see right there in that window someone in whom God says, I will choose to be merciful to this person. Listen, I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. Well, we know right off from the text that Christ decided he would be compassionate. 
toward the leper there. He decided he would be merciful toward the leper there. If you know God and you are born of the Spirit of God, then you know this, that of all the people in the world, we don't know, we don't really know everybody, we, we don't know who all's born again, who all's not born again. And that's not really the point of this message, but the point is this, that in God's exclusive um, right to give out mercy to whom he will give, be merciful to, to give out compassion to whom he will give compassion to, we know this, he will, he wants to be merciful to his children. Isn't that something? I think it is. That just completely undoes the way that we think about God. If all that God has given Jesus comes to Jesus, and as they come there, Jesus says, I will not cast you out. Well, that does mean, in a sense, that does mean that, that, that those who would come, who were compelled by the Spirit to come to Christ, that He wouldn't send them away. But it also means those lepers that come to Him, that God had ordained would come to Him. He says He will be merciful to them. It also means that whenever we come to Christ in our everyday life, and we need mercy for our everyday life, that Christ says to us, I will, I will. Is there ever an occasion to where the child of God could go to God and ask Him for mercy in which God would turn Him away and say no? Think about that. Is there ever an occasion in the child in your life in which you could come to God and you could ask God for mercy and God would say no? If you answer that question, yes, you have a small view of the cross. How about whenever you've had a bad day? And you're not doing the way you ought to be doing with your Bible reading. And your prayer life's kind of gone to pot. And you just got finished doing, I don't know, blowing up on somebody or whatever it is that you do that you shouldn't be doing. Is that an occasion to where you could come to God and ask God for mercy and He might withhold it? No, it's not. Is that an occasion that you might be timid about coming to God and asking for mercy? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. We get that way. And so as we look and we see this leper, we see how he approaches Christ, but really more importantly, we see how Christ approaches him. We get a, a, a window into a God who deals with us, number one, based on his own prerogative, based on his own will, but number two, consistently, consistently based on his own will. We, we, we find, not just in the, in the story there, but also in the, the rest of Scripture, as we look at God and, and the fact that God is unchangeable, the fact that God has made promises as these things are unfolded to us, while God is exclusive, let me ask this, if there were someone that were unregenerate, someone that w- was not uh, a child of God, and they come to God and they ask for mercy, well, what's the answer going to be? Anybody confused about that? It would be no, right? Now, that's not the most cheerful thing to think about, but it's still true. It would be no. Well, what would it be on their best day? On the, on the unregenerate person's best day as they come to God asking for mercy, what's his answer? On the day that they went and they solved the world hunger problem, what's God's answer? What's well, no. And if you flip that around, on the child of God's worst day as he comes to God and he asks God for, asks God for mercy, what's his answer? Well, it's always yes. As he asks God for grace, what's his answer? Well, it's always yes. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Something that you're really familiar with, this passage. And verse 3 really gives us the... um, sets the tone for the rest of the chapter of what he's going to be talking about, but really the rest of the book. 
But we get this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why? Paul gives us the reason. Who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. Now, we know that, right? I mean, we know our righteousness is in Christ. We know that we find grace in Christ. We know that we find mercy in Christ. But I wonder if we know that we always only exclusively find all of those things in Christ and if we, uh, and that while we find those things in Christ, Christ is, if we're in Him, He is always of the attitude of I will. I will be merciful. I will be gracious. If you come to me, I will not turn you away if God has drawn you to myself. If you come to me asking, I will not say no and push you back out. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And on this, I'm just I'm going to get some verses. We're not going to really read an extended passage to get the context here, but I'm going to read a few verses here. Romans chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We get the point here in verse 4 that if it's something that you've worked for, it's not grace, but it's debt. Isn't it easy? I know it is for me. Isn't it easy to feel like if you could just do this and you could just do that, then God would be more gracious than He is? If you could, if you could just get this discipline down or if you could just stop doing this or just start doing that, then God would really bless your life and your life would just really take off. And as we think about it that way, what we really are saying, and we probably don't think about it in this way, but what we really are saying, if I could just get God to be indebted to me, I would be a better Christian. And that just doesn't work. First of all, because God's never going to be indebted to you. But second off, that's just not the way God's laid it out. God has not called you to live the Christian life based on your performance. And I'd be sure that as God calls you to live the Christian life, He is changing you. He is moving you toward a certain thing. But God has not called you to rely on your performance on whether or not you're comfortable enough to come to Him and ask Him for grace, on whether or not you're comfortable enough to come to Him and ask Him for mercy. In Romans 11, you know, we get the same principle. Uh, Romans 11, um, verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be by works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. And again, we get the idea of a performance-based mentality toward God. But the truth is, on our best day, we're still not good enough for God. God has never been impressed with your righteous acts. God has never been impressed with your Bible reading. He's never been impressed with your prayer life. He's never been impressed with anything about you or me. But what He has always been impressed with from all eternity and what He has always loved and what He has always taken delight in is Himself, is His Son. And the reason you have access to His grace and to His mercy and to His love is because you've been placed inside of the one that God has been eternally pleased with. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty big breath of fresh air. It doesn't make me want to go out and start doing whatever it is that I want to do. But it sure does make it a lot more, and this is not about comfort, but it sure does ease you a little bit when you think about relating to God and what it is that God sees as God looks at you. Because the truth is, as we're here, uh, we're all in a performance-based relationship with each other. I mean, I will relate to you and I will think about you according to how you act. And the same thing is true of you with me. Uh, we, you're not going to escape that. I'm either going to like you or not like you, and that's going to be based on what you do. God's not like that. God's not like that. 
Because again, the truth is, the most well-behaved, most likable person is so unlikable to God that we couldn't even comprehend the gulf that's there. But not when we are found in Christ. So, we're not going to receive anything from God based on performance. In Romans 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works. Nay, but the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. If he is the God of the Jews only, is he not? Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision by faith, that we didn't make void the law through faith. God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now, we've a pretty lengthy little passage there. Uh, but as we read that, I say that just to say, as we read the truth that we are justified here freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ, that means we are justified to approach God at any time, in any circumstance. And it's not based on you. It's based on Christ. And again, we know that. We can compartmentalize that in our systematic theology, and we can check that off the checklist of our understanding, but it's really difficult to live that, isn't it? It's really difficult to let that truth influence the way that we live and the way that we relate to God on a daily basis. I'm justified through the work of Christ, I have free access to God. I have just as much favor with God at my lowest point as I do in my highest point because the favor has nothing to do with me and everything to do with His Son. Again, that's a breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air. The idea that you are not in performance with God. It gets you kind of, you know, it might be kind of uh, depressing to think that on your best day God wouldn't be impressed with anything that you do. Um, but that's just the fact. I mean, there's, there's no way around that. But it sure does make this idea of being found in Christ a lot fuller, doesn't it? A lot richer. A lot more compelling. So as we, ju- we approach God, we approach Him as those who are justified. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness, or through righteousness, unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And we go there, and Paul is making the point here that although your sin is big, and although your sin is real, and although your sin really is offensive, that grace is stronger than your sin. And we know that, right? But in a real sense, we don't know that. In a real sense, we do not know that. You ever struggle over past sins, wishing you should go, you could go back and undo those. You ever have things that just follow you around. You have a hard time getting over your mess ups. We call them mess ups. Really, it's just sin, blow ups, whatever it is. We do struggle with that. But I'm going to tell you the reason we have such a hard time, and the reason our guilt lingers longer than it should, whenever it comes to um, when we sin, is because in a real way. 
we do not understand the truths that are in verses 19 through 20 of Romans chapter 5. If grace really was bigger than our sin, and if Christ died for our sin, not just so that the penalty would be gone, but also for the shame and for the guilt and all those things, then I'm not saying we should live a carefree life and sin should never affect us. What I am saying is is that by faith, as we do sin, we come to God, we confess that sin, we ask for grace, we ask for mercy. God says it's a sure thing, you have it, and then we move on. But the moving on part is kind of hard, isn't it? It really is. But God says you have every reason in the world to believe that my grace is stronger than your sin. We know grace is our deepest need. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we've been talking about grace and we've been talking about mercy and all these things that we have. And, and it, in case we're tempted to think that we've kind of drifted away from Mark chapter 1 verse uh, 30 or verse 40 on down, uh, all this grace, all this mercy is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who we come to here whenever he says, listen, you have a high priest that is touched with the feelings of your infirmities. He's touched with those. He's moved by those. Again, we get the same sort of picture that we get in Mark chapter 1. He has compassion toward you over those. Because in all points, he was tempted just like we are, yet without sin. And so the conclusion is this. Let us therefore, based on that, and there's more in the chapter, but based on who Jesus is, what? Let us approach God this way. The word is boldly, with confidence. Let us therefore come with confidence under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's the appropriate way for you to approach God? As somebody who's needy, as someone who needs something, as someone who doesn't really have much to offer, really someone that doesn't have anything to offer. And as we come to God and as we pray to God and as we approach God, we have to approach the throne of grace to speak to the God of grace about receiving more grace. It's all about us and our need. And then it's all about the one who fills our need. God, I need more grace here. I'm losing patience and I'm losing it fast. God, I need more grace here. I am really weak right now in this area. God, I need more grace here. I'm, I, I just, whatever it is, whatever your, I don't know what your, your specifics are in your life, but whatever they are and wherever your needs are and wherever it is that you find that you're weak, you come to God and you say, I need more grace here. You already know me. You already know what I'm, I'm, I'm doing right now. You already know how sinful I am. Now, I need your mercy. I need your grace. And just like David, if I don't get it, you know, David says several times, Lord, where are you? If you don't come, I'm going to die here. My enemies are surrounded me. What's taking you so long? And as we look at that, we don't look at somebody who's irreverent toward God. We look at somebody who's just honest about their situation. And so as you think about approaching Christ, you think about approaching God, Number one, you're approaching someone who's full of compassion and full of mercy. Number two, you're approaching someone, if you are a believer, you're approaching someone who will, which means who wants to continue to be merciful and gracious to you. And then you're approaching someone who is not grading you on a performance level scale, but who has really taken the test and passed it for you. I don't know about you, but when those realities hit home, it sure does make prayer something different than what it normally is. And it sure does make life and living in light of a God who's real and not just a thought that's tucked away in a systematic theology book. 
a lot more pleasant to approach. Fully convinced of our need, fully convinced of His ability, fully submissive to His authority, compelled by His love. Compelled by His love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the... uh, the glimpses that we get of your character, we thank you for revealing really who you are through the person of Jesus Christ. We're grateful that you're compassionate, Lord. We're grateful that you are not relating to us based on our performance, but you have chosen to be gracious to us. You've chosen to be merciful to us. And then as we deal with you, Lord, even in chastisement, you are exclusively merciful to us. We do not receive um, judgment from your hand in the sense that you're rewarding us according to our iniquities. But you're merciful all the way. Everything that we've ever received from you has been merciful to move us, to mold us, to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And you've chosen to do that through grace and you've chosen to do that through love. I pray that those realities would be uh, true in our own minds as we approach you. And I pray that you would bless us to be compelled to come to you again and again for grace in our day-to-day lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.